Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. And Goldfarb is a charm. His current profession is being the heart and mind behind the music, behind Pokemon, where he has created motifs, threads of musical compositions and conversations around a cultural icon, but he also brings to it a really different way of looking at music. He will share how he uses technology and analog relationships to create music from his Northern California studio with a team to work extensively on a broad variety of music and, and genres within a single type of experience. But he'll talk about his unique type of synesthesia and how playing music at a very young age and being able to play piano and other instruments behind live performance gave him this unique superpower, my phrase, not his, uh, on how he looks at and embraces music along with multimedia and live experiences. He'll talk a bit about the great American middle brow experience and how that drove his understanding and awareness of music about Beach Blanket Babylon and his years and years of working on that live show, but how that connects to working with digital audio workstations and his really interesting magic of connecting all these dots around creating music for Pokemon. So please enjoy this conversation with Ed. I have kind of always heard music in my head. And since I've never spent any length of time in anyone else's head, um, <laughs> I... That would be weird all by itself. Right, say. yeah. You know, I mean, we also have being John Malkovich a couple of times. But beyond that, you know, I... <laughs> I haven't really done it, so the only assumption that I can draw is not everyone hears music in their head. And now, do you hear it all the time? I do sometimes? hear it. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just hear it all the time. I'm hearing a score to our conversation right now. I'm even seeing it kind of written out a little bit in manuscript, which is, um, is something that's actually kind of crept in as my ear has developed it, it's actually made me a tiny bit more insane in my mid 40s and um and early 50s now are you are you in part synesthetic yes very much so yeah okay i have several young friends who are synesthetic and i have a little bit of synesthesia otherwise i, I mean I, I pay attention to it more but the the fact that we have music coming in as multiple sensory inputs is not again not as you're saying you can't see in other people's heads to <laughs> see what that is and an impact. But for you, it's kind of a music superpower. I I guess yeah, and it's just it's totally natural. Um, and I have worked to develop it. But I was raised, you know, the my my parents both came up in the what I guess uh alex ross from the um from the new yorker the classical music writer called the the great american middlebrow experience or something like that where like every kid in the new york public high school uh, public schools where my parents grew up like knew all the major themes from the beethoven symphonies it's just something that they were taught as a you know like you would learn your your ABCs or or um or math stuff. So I I kind of grew up in 
in that, and they both played piano. My my dad worked his way through law school, um, leading Dixieland bands professionally. So there was music in the house. Like a lot of middle class families, we had a piano, and I took lessons early, but I was banging out stuff on the piano like listening to Sesame Street records and stuff like that before I started lessons. I, I think I started um, at the the Yamaha Music School was just starting in the United States at that point in, it would have been the very early 70s. And I started those classes at, I guess, the age of five. And um, I took to it. I dug it. I, I had to be kind of initially cajoled into playing, you know, a half hour every every day and my mom would sit with me and uh, she says I, I was you know really cool about it really early on um, and as as much as having a, a child myself I'm like really really I was just chill about it you know I probably was <laughs> because even now playing um, uh, piano is a great source of comfort for me and I'll come home from a gig where I played three hours and um, and I'll want to play so I'm I'm quite fortunate that way, and I I do not take that for granted. Like like with any artist, it takes a little leap to go from the stasis of dreaming about what you're going to uh, work on and how m- marvelous it's going to be, and then actually jumping into actually working, and then you know the disappointment. Nope, it's not that marvelous. Oh well, I do have enough residual remembering of how much fun that is to to create and play so i don't have too much trouble working and and getting into a working mode which is mm-hmm. quite quite fortunate because it, it can be hard as an artist to actually get down to the process of creating so you come from a, a music as uh showing up in your head music as practice music as emotional, physical engagement. Yeah. How did you get further and deeper and broader into all of this? I guess I started, I started playing piano for people, like for my school choirs and stuff like that. In retrospect, really early, like in elementary school, I think I was accompanying on occasion, like as a special thing, I was accompanying my sixth grade choir. Like, okay, here's one song and little Edward Goldfarb is going to play piano for us. I can only imagine what that sounded like. But that was wonderful of the teachers, like to give me the shot. I don't know whether, God help me, it was me who suggested that I help out or something like that. But um, but that got me started performing, besides the, the you know usual piano recitals, which were horribly traumatic and uh, the less discussed the better um but the 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 working with with groups with like accompanying and stuff like that that was sort of my ticket in initially as a as a young kid and I actually became a professional at like 12 or 13 I wrote some rudimentary arrangements for my middle school theatrical production like charts weren't available for a particular song and I offered to write them even though I had very little idea of what to do and I started accompanying for a vocal teacher and playing at parties when I was 13. So how did that end up with being a professional musician 
And then going from that <laughs> to everything you've done, including the current incarnation with Pokemon, where people may not think, how is, how is music and, and, and the art of music and being, you know, getting involved with composing for film, but how does ah. that end up with Pokemon? Oh, you've had yeah. such a journey, right? I had a very early realization as watching cartoons as a kid that the music in um, in cartoons, especially in Bugs Bunny, the great um, uh, scores that were put, put together by Carl Stalling and those other um, early geniuses working with working with stone tools um, and and gaslights, I, I realized that what they did was really cool, and that kind of what they scored was and was the way I heard things in my head. And at you know, it, it's it's probably. Uh, a chicken and egg thing where um, experiencing those wonderful works of art at a very early age, just naturally when I would see somebody slip on the street, I would hear, boom, 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 you know, because how else are you going to score that? You know, and, and I, as I grew up hearing that stuff and was musically inclined, it, I think it made sense that doing that, making music for animation and kind of like taking the stuff that I heard um, in my head anyway and somehow making a living with that was um, was kind of in the back of my mind and from there professionally my music my musical journey is probably not uh, it's probably totally different and also totally similar to a lot of other professional musicians who've who've had multi-decade careers um, without becoming famous uh, because I, uh, I started out playing piano. That was my main instrument. I learned how to read music and did the usual kind of kid who knows music stuff, playing in on ensembles, learning a little about writing um, to, because keyboards were expensive still um, as I, Went from junior high to high school. I got interested in playing guitar because I got interested in in rock music and pop, and it was more inexpensive to get a decent uh, sounding presenting guitar rig. Um, guitars were also much cooler than keyboards. This is like the late seventies, early eighties. Um, so I started to pick up guitar, and of course, if you play, play guitar and you know something about music, you just need to think a little bit, and then you can play bass. And as I was in bands and starting to have ideas, if I'm you have ideas, I'm not sure I- my bass player would agree on that. But yeah. No, no, of course not. But I, you know, I'm, from a there's a kind of thing, there's a kind of arrogance you get as a, as a music producer too, where it's like because you hear these things in your head, you think that you can do them yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And most producers don't get over that. You know, hopefully we just get the budget at some point um, to uh, to hire people who do do things that sound as good as. As um, as what we're hearing, and of course, there's always Pro Tools, uh, or you know, or your other DAW. You know, nowadays, I, I do feel that we're more limited by what we hear in our heads than what we're capable of creating with our hands. Now, I think you know, kind of the sky's the limit, and you don't have to be able to play at all. You just have to be able to hear, and I think it's. I think it's harder to hear than it is to play, but that's probably another thing. Um, anyhow, so I'm in high school now, and I have I know just enough about the 
four main rock and roll instruments to be da- dangerous. The, um, the other inflammatory thing that I was going to say in my uh, previous paragraph after the guitar and bass stuff was that um, because I was a person in a band um, and I was both a trained musician and I had ideas, I, um, I wanted to tell the drummer what to do. <laughs> So I learned enough yeah. about about the kit to um to do to do that, and that was also the early um early years of um of drum programming and and drum machines, and I was very excited about that um, to be able to not deal with drum sets and the um, the kludge of recording them, which was no small feet when you had the equipment of the late 70s early 80s as a kid you know a four-track recorder or mm-hmm. whatever um so okay so now i'm in i'm getting out of high school into college i was actually interested in um in medicine i was uh i i was kind of an overachiever in in high school and that i had good good grades and you know kind of academic scholarship stuff uh, but my parents pushed me into music um, my dad uh, was a musician growing up you know in post-war uh, Brooklyn and um, really wanted to be a professional musician and was kind of just sort of pushed into the law profession by his parents and he didn't want to see the same thing happen to me um so he's like you know you're gifted at music you've already been a professional musician for several years you should just pursue that um and and so I did so I I got a music degree at Cal Berkeley and um and graduated in in 1988 well can you share with us I mean if someone looks you up on IMDB the thing that kind of jumps out is the how the heck did this kid end up with the music department of apocalypse now I kind of made the arrogant decision that I wasn't going to go to Los Angeles, that I was going to stay in the Bay Area. And a lot of it was just kind of personal sort of, you know, fears, knowing what I knew knew about my personality. I was concerned I'd wind up dead in a ditch by the end of my 20s in Los Angeles and that it was kind of better for me to stay out of the, what I perceived to be the belly of the beast of the industry and see what I could do in the San Francisco Bay Area because it's it's where I had spent the grand majority of my life. It's where I felt at home. I already had a bunch of contacts, not people who were doing, you know, international or even nationally recognized stuff, but there was enough of a kind of just regional music business at that point where I was already helping people with demos and playing on records and doing all different kinds of live performances in a bunch of different musical but other than that unrelated disciplines so I felt like there was a pretty good thing going so I I stuck around a friend of mine that I had gone to Hebrew school with calls me maybe six months after I'm out of college and just doing my demo studio thing playing at a at um at a church, uh, music directing for children's musical theater groups, kind of doing anything that came down the pike musically. Because I had kind of, I both had the sort of personality where something came in that I hadn't done before, I'd say, oh sure, I can do that. And then I'd figure out how. And I also 
had like I had some rock and roll skills and I had some theater skills and I could lead singers or instrumentalists from behind a, a keyboard and I could write arrangements. I could do all these things. I maybe wasn't the I, I certainly wasn't the best at any of them, but I had that kind of decathlon thing where, you know, unless it was like playing lead guitar in a metal band, I could probably do whatever it was. Um, so six months after, after school, uh, after I get out of college, this guy, um, Jeff Saltzman calls me and says, Hey, I, Ed, remember me? Went to Hebrew school. You know, I used to, after Hebrew school stuff, I would run into him occasionally at Tower Records, you know, because uh, he worked there. And um, that was that was high school. But he called me and said, I got this recording contract. And uh, it was a wonderful story. You know, this, um, the, I digress, but, but Jeff is one of those guys who, like, made cassettes in his bedroom and handed them off to friends. And friends would pass them around to other friends. And eventually... A friend knew someone at a record company came to came back to Jeff said, "Hey, we love what what you're doing. We want to give you money and and have you make records for us." And he said, "You know, I'm not. I got this cool gig at Tower Records right now, and I'm just really not into it. Just <laughs> one of these amazing stories." But anyhow, they eventually convinced him to do it, and he called me because he remembered me as the guy who like seemed to know what he was doing about that kind of stuff. We ended up putting together a studio. He, he had this brilliant idea to use his advance to buy a 16-track recorder, um, tape recorder, because that's what, what was around, and a mixing board. And we set it up in my nice apartment, and we you know split the, um, the time that we used it. He worked on his record. I, I worked on my stuff. And in those kind of three years that we shared that space, we both just learned a, a ton about making records and I scored a couple of short films and um, we, we just had a really great period of, of growth and, um, and learning out of the blue. Uh, a friend of mine said, uh, Hey, I'm, I've got this gig up at beach blanket Babylon in San Francisco, this theater show. There is an opportunity. They're looking for a music director having really, again, just making this, crazy left turn after working on studio stuff you know for three or four years which is an eternity when you're in in your early 20s I um I answered the call for um for Beach Blanket Babylon and I I got that that job I was a little I was a little young in retrospect I was I was 24 when I was hired the way the gig was structured I was managing people in the band who were who were quite a bit older than me and theoretically I had to sort of manage the singers and performers as well and that wasn't a great dynamic but artistically it was huge it had run from 1974 continuously so it was the longest running musical theater production of any kind in the world and I was music director there from um, 1991 to 2002. Arguably at its commercial peak, it, it had played eight shows a week in, um, in North Beach in San Francisco, and it was sold out every show, like f for years. But it was a satirical review based on pop culture and politics, and it changed constantly. It changed based on what was going on in the world. So we would write musical numbers 
on Monday and they would be put into the show on Wednesday based on something culturally that had happened the previous Friday. So it was a great way to learn all kinds of musical and, and theatrical and, and, uh, and technical disciplines. And it was a great way to meet any artist or, um, or celebrity who passed through San Francisco or who lived in San Francisco, including Francis Ford Coppola, who has been a Bay Area resident, I think, but, you know, he, he lives other places too, but he's been a Bay Area resident primarily since the 1970s. And he was friendly with the, uh, the people who wrote and managed Beach Blanket Babylon. And we were introduced and he and I hit it off and I've been working with him and his family ever since. You have done so much. You have, <laughs> but no, but it's been a, a random walk, but a not random walk that you have taken your expertise and grown it. You've done stuff in film and TV and ads, games, and live performances, uh, soundtracks. How in the world did you get to what you're now doing? And I want to talk about kind of the world of creation and technology in Pokemon. Yeah. Um, well, I one of the things that I did at Beach Blanket Babylon in, in this 90-minute musical performance that happened eight times a week. So how many, not including rehearsals, how many hours am I playing piano each many. week? <laughs> right. And one of the things that I would do, we had musical numbers in the course of the 90 minutes, but I also played underscore for dialogue that happened on the stage. And that would be fluid and dynamic kind of based on what happened in the show. It was pretty carefully scripted, but it changed all the time. So I was always developing underscore and, you know, improvising and improvising and creating in, in real time. So I, I did that show for for more than a decade so i built up all these improvisational compositional chops and in my spare time when i um while i was at beach blanket i was still running a studio and kind of eased my way into film i i, I had always had had contacts in um in the world of um advertising and and short films and stuff so i did a little bit of that and then when i met the coppola family and and started doing stuff for american zoetrope i did more of that and the um experience that i had improvising underscore for beach blanket babylon was huge it i i really started to be able to feel comfortable scoring because it, it takes a it takes a while to kind of get the hang of it and uh, all you know, I would say that scoring for images, e even though like scoring for animation is way different, you know, comic animation is, is different than scoring for for uh, for horror or drama. A lot of tenets are are the same. These, these um, styles are are more similar than they are different. Um, Let's teleport just to today. Today you wake up, right, and you're working with a group of other people on short-term deadlines to take <laughs> images from an international superstar brand of for all ages, but for all ages, yeah, and need to create almost an emotional translation. <laughs> what is it that you actually 
do what tech do you use what people do you use how, and what timelines do you have to work on how do you make this orchestra of of engagement happen for something that is bringing a, an asset that's been around for a long time and making it fresh and engageable maybe that's overly leading the witness here but oh well assuming that? that all that stuff that you say is true not the technical <laughs> stuff but like the creative achievements yeah <laughs> um assuming that that's true well um what do i do well um we do um pokemon the series has been um broadcast internationally for well i'm in the 22nd season um as i'm doing this interview that season is going to uh conclude that, that season has run in the united states more or less from january 2019 to january 2020 there's um there's upwards of 50 episodes in this season and that's a japanese anime tradition in that there's one episode a week and there are no um there are no breaks <laughs> i i don't i don't know what the um what laws can uh concerning uh working <laughs> hours are in in japan but i know it's um it, it can be a hard it can be a hard order. That's a lot of shows. But as I work on um, what's called a, uh, a dub in, in that there's, an, there's a version of the show that happens in Japan and then I'm working on the what's called the dub, the international version, uh, meaning that the uh, languages that you're going to hear it in are, are, are dubbed. It's other, there are other than the original. Um, I think mine is, it's heard in up, up it's like a, I don't know the exact figures. It's like 110 countries and like 17 different languages or something. So, um, but I get episodes and um, I get the sound effects and Japanese dialogue. And then I kind of just look at the pictures and, um, and, um, and keep working until the, the music that's heard on the soundtrack is the music that I hear on my head or, or close to it, the the concept of in Pokemon uh, roughly translates into pocket monsters. Although um, we don't use that language uh, with Pokemon in the United States, um, and there are upwards there's almost eight hundred of the of eight hundred different Pokemon, which are fantastical creatures with all different kinds of attributes one of my favorites is the camel with volcanoes for humps um but there's <laughs> really there's there's really all kinds and the most famous is is pikachu the adorable yellow electric mouse with the zigzag tail the significant things that i do with the score is that there is a little i i've created a little musical motif for each pokemon that i've in countered in my each pokemon that that um that factors significantly in the score of the episodes that i've um that i've worked on so far you i i have given them a theme so i um i have a database of more than 300 of these motifs that i've created um which it's only it's coincidental that i've done about 300 episodes of this show maybe 300 310 and um, the, the motif count may, may be a little lower, maybe a little higher. Um, so that means I've addressed a, a bit less than half of the Pokemon that exist. And 
so that's the um, that's one of the primary artistic things that I do in in my score. Technically, I use Pro Tools. I, I'm pretty sure I'm one of the, I'm in the, a distinct minority of composers who who use MIDI and virtual instruments and use Pro Tools. But there's nothing uh, there's nothing that I that I want to do that I can't do with Pro Tools. MIDI. My um my assistants use stuff like Logic and Ableton, and I'm fluent with those. But I just love Pro Tools for the ease of use for working with audio, and um it it's just the the DAW that I know the best. And although it, it seems like a lot of people are much more comfortable jumping ship from um or using multiple DAWs than when I started out, it still does feel that like they're like religions that you pick one early and you just kind of stick with it. And if it disappoints, it has to really disappoint you in order for you to jump ship. (laughs) But then is it jump ship or adding things to it? And then you're working with other people that are in their own uh, digital religious experiences of working that they work with. I mean, so, so how are you kind of um, integrate because you're saying that you're adding people you have so much going on with this right what is a current tv show music production studio look like in a in the current era i mean you you've got the ability to hear things in your head and translate things both into traditional acoustic as well as digital right how do you work with other people with all that and how did how's the pace go how does that all work oh well the um it it uh we the show um the the Pokemon show the re- the release of the anime series uh, coincides with the release of the game. So there's a new there's kind of a reboot of the anime every three years because there's a new Pokemon handheld game released every every three years. So I, there's I am am I'm going to be starting my third three year cycle my my seventh year as as the composer for the show. Um, in 2020, and we reboot. We don't create new motifs um, for Pokemon that we've already done so because that would be insane. And one of the things that we're looking for is is continuity, so that these motifs uh, occur episode over episode and season after season. Um, so we don't change the motifs, but we do get new Pokemon when we start a new three-year arc, and we also get a new region. The show, uh, the action of the show takes place in a new area, and again, this mirrors the game. So we create a new sonic language, uh, we a new orchestrational palette for each of the three years. Um, the, so that involves a lot of composing for an, an initial period every three years and and that period can be anywhere from three three months to six months where we're frantically creating new content um over the three years 150 episodes give or take of the show um we'll we'll create a library of cues and we will reuse a lot of um of cues. So over the three years, the work gets slightly less intense, although we are always, you know, scoring new stuff for each episode. At the beginning, the scores are all new. There's no library. We're starting from scratch, except for the 
except for the motifs, which are musical information rather than sonic information. Um, I want to pause you there and ask the question, who is we? Oh, who is we? Um, Well, it it depends. It's always me. It's always my assistant and co-composer, Akil Gopal, um, who I met through the um, Berklee School of Music referral service when I started um, working on Pokemon. I, I, I contacted a, a composer friend, great composer and guitarist named Lyle Workman, and said, I got this gig, what do I do? And he's like, okay, well, you're going to need someone working for you, and et cetera, et cetera. And he talked me through it. And I was very fortunate to find Akil. He had been out of school, I think, less than a year, already a super gifted orchestrator and composer. And he has um, been working with me and has, has been my employee um, for for every minute that I've been working on Pokemon. So that's been wonderful. Um, and beyond that, we have a, a rotating um, series of, um, of interns and helpers um, who will remain nameless simply because we're kind of between them right now. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I'm ramping up. And I'll probably, at the most, I'll have five people working with me to varying degrees. And at and various I, um, locations, because you're you're still in NorCal, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm in North Northern California. Akil is in Southern California and has always been in Southern California. Um, and whoever works with me can kind of be anywhere. We just have um, we we have mirror systems. Like I use specific uh, soft software instruments for my strings and horns and synths and stuff like that, and specific reverb settings. But it's really easy for us to. Um, emulate the same audio but that's important because there are several of us um, there can be several different composers on a show uh, on on a given show and it needs to be sonically compatible you don't always hear sonic compatibility when you listen to a score especially in an animated score it can be pretty piecemeal but I, I like to go for consistency I will say that we're kind of used to um, especially nowadays with a score being a combination of stuff that sounds orchestral and stuff that sounds electronic and pop songs and that kind of thing. Um, but I, I try to keep things um, vibrant and unique and with the awareness that they might be, they might be watching these shows in a hundred years and they're definitely going to be watching them in 20 years. So I don't want anything that sounds too much like today, whatever that means. So you've got your deep history of growing up with music. You have years and years of producing for live stage and being in that moment, um, as well as all your work in film, TV, and games coming to inform an interesting, unique production environment. Yes. Where do you think this stuff for you will be going and what do you have to next kind of create and innovate for yourself? Well, it's um, it's funny because this is doing what I do is very, very close to my to my dream job. <laughs> it, it um, it's uh, I I'm I'm not famous, but I'm busy. Um, I'm not rich, but I'm not complaining. Um, I get to do just about any kind of music genre wise that I'd like to my my work 
week to week and moment to moment is dictated by what, by what happens on the screen. But what happens on the screen in this particular show is so wide-ranging and, and eclectic and inventive that I really feel creatively satisfied by what I do um, with the show um, scoring. And also a thing that we haven't talked about is I, I get to compose uh, and produce songs um, and have them get disseminated all over the world. Not necessarily the way uh, across the, um, the way um, broad bass appeal pop music is, but it's, it's usually like the, the theme song for the weekly series or um, a song that's heard at the beginning or end of one of the movies that we do each year. And that's, that's I, I love making pop music. There's a certain kind of knack that you have to have for it that I will be honing my entire life. But the songs that I produce are, are well-received, and I have great fun making them, and it's a wonderful kind of adjunct and um, alternative to working on the score. So it's a really cool gig. And when, when people ask what, what would, you know, what do you still want to do? And it's like, well, I, you know, I'd love to, love to work on the star, work with the star Wars franchise uh, because it means, uh, it mean meant a lot to me just as a, um, just as a human growing up and also John Williams scores and, and his stuff in general speaks to me at, at a higher level than most other composition to picture just the melodicism and the attention to detail. There've been other things that I've heard, but, but no one really does it for me in this particular milieu, the way John Williams does. So it'd be, it would be cool to, to follow in his footsteps. I could, I suppose I could do that doing a disaster movie. Um, since that was the other thing he did in the seventies. And, um, I suppose I'm doing it anyway now, just, by the nature of, of doing what I'm doing. So other than that, I've never had a business plan. There's this wonderful <laughs> line um, from the magician comedian Penn Jillette that he says about the comedian Gilbert Gottfried that you, <laughs> you couldn't run a dry cleaners with Gilbert's business sense. And you really couldn't run a dry cleaners with my business sense either. But just the fact that I, I guess, remained um, interested in in music and what's going on and that I still have a still that I've I've never lost my love for it if anything it's become greater I I'm kind of at this point the gentle forces that guide me and the way that I interact with them have not steered me too far and I think I'm just going to kind of follow that dynamic through and see what happens and let's plan to do a follow-up conversation Absolutely. here and, and have you, because in many ways you have such a great deep dive and um, really different lens on some of this. But mm. uh, for, if for now, if people would like to get a hold of you, how could they reach out? How would you like to be reached out to? Oh, um, you can um, check out some of my work at edgoldfarbmusic.com. Um, I, uh, Pokemon is on Netflix. My work starts with season 17. Um, and yeah, so there's, there should be six seasons of it on Netflix or maybe it's just season 20 through, um, 
through 22 now. I forget. Some things go on, things go off. Um, and Amos, uh, Pokemon is also on uh, Disney XD. And at goldfarbmusic.com. And, uh, you know, you can email me if you um, want to talk to me about what I do or even more interestingly about what you do um, at uh, madcaplabs at comcast.net. That's me. Great, Ed. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this podcast. Many thanks to the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music and the UCLA Center for Music Innovation for being our hosts of this ongoing series. You can subscribe to us in all the usual places, or you can come find us at innovation.schoolofmusic.ucla.edu. Join us again to follow the other adventures that we will be tracking down in innovating music. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Merrimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.